Matthew 3, 1 through 12 is our reading today. I'm reading from the NIV, uh, page 682 in the Pew Bibles. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and from the whole region of, jo of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do you think that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father? I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering the wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are in the middle of a, or towards the end in fact, of a sermon series which we're calling Disruptive Grace. They're looking at how grace breaks in as Jesus literally breaks in and disrupts our, our lives. And I want to talk as we begin to look at this passage at what it means to have disruptive travels. It's something that happens a lot in this time of the year. Have you ever been so disoriented that you found yourself going in completely the wrong direction? That has happened to me a few times in wrong way streets. I'm driving down the wrong way on a one way street and people are honking at me and trying to get my attention and I think, man, they must think I'm driving really well or like my car. Or when you come to a roadworks and there's a, and there's a detour sign and you take the detour and you never see another detour sign again and you get lost off in some wayward place. Or I remember before we had these phones that had maps on them, Google still had maps that you could print out. And so I printed those maps out once to go to, the, to a friend in Queens. But I didn't realize if you got the address wrong, it literally just took you to the middle of the town. So here I was in the middle of a town in Queens, the town of Queens, surrounded by apartment buildings, no map on my phone and no way of contacting anyone, feeling very lost and disoriented. I remember I was out with Abby skiing one time in the town we lived in, was on the other side of where the ski fields were. And GPS didn't work in that little gap. And so unless you preloaded the maps in the phone, you got horribly lost and, or you knew your way. So many times I found my, my travels 
upended and finding myself going the wrong way or in completely the wrong direction. And I like as a thought exercise today for you to imagine that you're intending, you set out and you're intending to drive to Canada. And you're driving along and there are a few clues that things may not be the way they're supposed to be. The weather starts to get warmer. Well, that can happen, right? That can happen. And when you stop to get food, there's a lot of Tex-Mex offer, offerings. Well, that can happen too, right? Even perhaps on the way to Canada. And a lot of people around there are talking with a southern drawl. And that maybe there's some southerners who moved onto the route up to Canada. And there's some clues. And all of a sudden you see a sign which says, welcome to Mexico. And you realize you've been for two days perhaps driving in completely the wrong direction. You begin to think perhaps something's wrong when you get the little hints, but when you see the sign, the realization hits. And what do you do? Well, first of all, I guess you have to acknowledge it, right? You have to say, oh my gosh, I'm going completely in the wrong direction. Maybe you have some feelings. I'm sure I would have some feelings, some frustrations, maybe some guilt, some shame, some embarrassment, some remorse. What a lot of wasted time and a lot of gas money. But what really matters is what you do. What do you do there? Do you sit and get stuck in that or do you do an action? Do you stop? Do you turn and do you start to go in the other direction? Now this is incredibly disruptive. You have a trajectory, you have a plan, you know where you're going, but all of a sudden a sign comes up and says, the, the route you're on is the wrong direction. Stop, turn, go back in the other direction. And that's exactly what John the Baptist's message is saying to us today. This text is one that comes in and disrupts our lives. It's about the constant disruption of repentance. And we're going to look at this from two different perspectives. First of all, we're going to look at the imperative of repentance. And for those of you who are writing things down, a subtitle might be, given in love by God through his prophet, so the imperative of repentance, and the second one is the meaning of repentance, which we're going to say is bowing twice before our God. So we have the imperative imperatence or giving, given in love by God through his prophet, and the meaning of repentance, bowing twice before your God. So let's jump first into this imperative of repentance. Repentance is given in love by God through his prophet. Now let's get some context for the passage we're looking at. Prior to this, we've had the Magi come and visit Jesus, the wise men, as they're sometimes called. We've had Herod's edict, which is kill all the babies under the age of 12. Jesus and his family flew to, uh, fled to Egypt and have now returned from Egypt. And we begin here the ministry section of John's Gospel, of, of Matthew's Gospel, beginning with the introduction of John's ministry. And it has this, this sort of form to it. It starts with a quote from Isaiah, and then his sermon is summarized, summarized perhaps in one word, repent. Or if you want to be a little, a little more generous, in a sentence, repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, I'm sure many of you have wanted a one word or a one sentence sermon from North Point. So what's going on here? Repent, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Right, after this section on John, we flip back to the story of Jesus. We look at Jesus' baptism. We look at his testing in the wilderness. 
<coughs> excuse me. Then John is arrested and we're introduced to Jesus' ministry in chapter 4. It begins in verse 12 and it starts the same way. A quote from Isaiah and then in verse 17, from, the time, from that time on, Jesus began to preach. And what did Jesus preach? The same summary sentence as what John did. He began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And for those who are looking for that, that's chapter 4, verse 17. And the parallel is intentional. This repent thing is a big deal. It's not something you can sort of brush off or move away from or not think is central to the Christian faith. It's a big message, a big summary. Repent. So let's get some context and what's going on in our passage. Let me read 1 to 4 for you again. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one cry, calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel hair and he had leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Okay. They've been waiting. The last prophet had turned up on the scene 400 years ago. That's as old as this country is. Imagine a group of people waiting for as long as America, the United States, has existed. They're waiting, and they're waiting generation after generation, 400 years for the promised Messiah. Is this the one? And they know that the promised Messiah, because it's in the Scripture, is going to be heralded in by another prophet. So they're waiting for that prophet. Is John the Baptist that prophet? That's what they're asking themselves. And there's some clues here. First of all, he's in the wilderness. Now that sounds like he just must be an odd guy. But actually, the wilderness is where God has historically met his people. Remember, he brought them out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, into that wilderness area at the bottom of Mount Horeb, where he gave them the law. And, he, and where he said to them, you don't need to steal because I'll provide what you need. You don't need to be angry. You don't need to kill and murder because I will give you peace in your community. You don't need to commit adultery because I will make relationships if you follow my ways and my edicts the way they should be. So the wilderness is a place where Israel was disciplined, brought up, matured, given guidance. In a sense, sometimes the love was tough, but it was love from God that matured them and brought them to where they needed to be. So the fact that John the Baptist is in the wilderness is sort of part of his credentials. Secondly, his wardrobe. He's wearing prophet attire. If you go back to 2 Kings, you'll see that this is what Elijah used to wear. There's an intentional and direct parallel here to the prophet Elijah, who John the Baptist is often compared to. His diet, locusts and honey. Well, guess what? I don't know about you, but the idea of eating locusts doesn't sound that good, even when they're dipped in honey. And the point here is he's not in it for the comfort or the money. He's not some sort of cheap televangelist asking for you to mail in money to him. His words tell us this. He's not afraid to say in his one-word sermon to the people of power things that they don't want to hear. Repent. He said that to Herod. Repent, you adulterer. 
He was thrown in prison and eventually had his head cut off. He's willing to die for his message. And he's not willing to die to hear the message for himself. He's willing to die to proclaim the message because he loves the people, because he cares. Now you have to see this for what it is. This is preparing a grand state visit. He's cleaning, he's preparing the way. If we knew, and I'm going to get this right this week, if we knew that King Charles was coming to our church, we would probably want to clean the toilets. We probably want to make sure the kitchen is pretty nice and ordered. We do this even for our own families recently. Now, Paul and Jen are not here. But I don't know, maybe nine months ago, I got a call from, from Jen saying, Paul dropped his wedding ring down his toilet. Can we just take the toilet off and have a look? I said, yeah, you can. You can do that. So they did that. I got a phone call from them three weeks ago saying, family are coming back into town. We need to put the toilet back on. So I'm like, you live without the toilet for, for however many months? So we do these things, right? We make our houses ready when people, when our family are coming, when our friends are coming. How much more is someone famous or important was to come? And what about God? What if God was coming? Would you be willing to clean your heart? Would you be willing to repent? Would you be willing to turn if you knew the Lord was coming? And here's the bottom line. He is coming. The, coming, the kingdom of heaven has come near. And this is John the Baptist's message to us. Repent, turn. And it is not a request. It's not him saying, hey, if you want to repent, you should repent. It's not him saying, I'd like to invite you all to come to the front and repent. Now, this is an imperative. This is an imperative given in love because he understands the consequences of not repenting. He's saying, what you do with your thoughts, what I do with my thoughts, what we do with our thoughts, our eyes, our hands, our feet, it really matters. They are for serving Jesus. What he is for, we should be for. What he is against, we should be against. This is not a silly story about going to Mexico when you meant to be going to Canada. This is about going further and further into the slavery of sin when you could be turning and moving towards and thriving in freedom under Christ's lordship. We were built for God's creation to thrive under his law, but so often in so many areas of our lives, we're ensnared by sin and trapped in an ever smaller existence. Repentance is the imperative given in love by God, by his prophet. So, point one. It's, uh, re repentance is given in love by God through his prophet. Let's look then at more, at more detail in what the meaning of repentance is. And I'm summing it up now for you. It's bowing twice before you, God. Now, the second half of this text is actually scary. The first half is sort of nice. It's a crazy guy with wild hair who eats locusts and honey, making big speeches out in the wilderness, putting people under the water, pulling him up. It's a little weird, but it's not threatening. Second half is pretty damn scary. Let me read it to you. I'm going to read verses 7 to 10 and then verses 12. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is ready at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water. We'll come back to that verse, skipping to 12. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff in unquenchable fire. It's a scary message. John turns the tables on those. See, what's going on here is that a team of people from head office, from, from probably from uh, Jerusalem in Judea, are coming to check out this guy who's drawing all this attention. We're going to give him our stamp of approval. Are we going to say that John the Baptist, who is this crazy guy who's drawing the crowds? We better check him out. We better see if he's okay. Who is he? What's he teaching? And the, the team is made up of devout religious people the Pharisees, and religious intellectuals, the Sadducees, devout religious intellectuals. Oh my gosh, I think he's talking about us. That's who we like to think of ourselves as. And they've come to examine John, and John turns the table on them and say, examine yourselves. And we should hear this too. Is your life ready for inspection by the Lord Jesus Christ. Is your life ready for inspection by the Lord Jesus Christ? Now they came with their spiritual resumes. We have Abraham as our father. We come with our spiritual resumes. I live in a Christian country. I'm growing up in a Christian family. I hold membership or I'm a leader in a local Christian church. I have verbally repented and verbally acknowledged my trust in Christ. And John's saying, wrong resume, Bzz, wrong resume. He gives it very clear in verse 8 what the right resume is. Let me read it to you. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he goes on to say very clearly what happens if you don't do that. First image is of cutting down these trees that are not producing fruit and throwing them in the fire. Second one, it's got the word unquenchable in it. It's the idea of winnowing uh, freshly cut wheat so that you throw it in the air and the chaff is blown off and the grain is saved and put in the barn. But what's chaff is burnt in unquestionable, in unquenchable fire. John the Baptist can be, uh, can be summarized like this. Show the fruit of repentance or burn in hell. Show the fruit of repentance or burn in hell. It's not a very popular message. It's not a very easy message to hear, but that's the words of John the Baptist. Show the fruit of repentance or burn in hell. Now people say the church in North America is a mile wide and a skin deep, that it's anemic. I don't know if that's true or not. But I can tell you when there's problems with churches, the first place to look is not 
Do they have a bunch of charismatic gifts going on? Is there all these uh, great and wonderful expressions of the Spirit in those visible ways? The first question to ask is, is that a church that lives and practices and is full of people who repent? I'm going to put up a quote from Francis Schaeffer. He's the one who set up this, the organization Labrie in Switzerland. It was an organization that focused on what does it mean to live faithfully and actively as a Christian, and this is what he says. Christian faith means bowing twice. First, the Christian needs to bow to the realm of being metaphysical or metaphysically. That is to acknowledge that he is a creature before the infinite personal creator who is there. Second, he now needs to bow to the realms of morals. I'm going to make that simple and easy to remember. I paraphrase it to this. Christians bow twice. Once to God as creator and a second time to Jesus as Lord. You see, I know, don't know about you, but I like to bow to God as creator. I like the fact that I was knit together in my mother's womb, that God has a purpose for me, a story for me, that he knows me intimately, that he wants me to walk with him. I like that. <coughs> I also like the fact that I can give him thanks. Thanks for my family, thanks for my friends, thanks for my food, thanks for my shelter, thanks for what a health I have. It feels good. I can be religiously devoted. I can be intellectual and knowledgeable. I can understand uh, what's going on in the theology of, of, of my faith. I have a good enough relationship with God. I feel a little superior. You know, most of my ducks are in a row. I can check a lot of boxes. But then I hold God off at a distance. No one has a right to tell me how I should live my life, how I should spend my time, my money, choose my relationships, what I do at work, what I do with my body, how I set my priorities. God has something to say about all of these things. He's Lord. Let me ask you that question. Is he Lord? And don't just say yes. It's not enough to bow once. Repentance means bowing twice to Jesus as Lord, submitting, working out our faith, turning every part of our lives to him, putting him under his authority. John's accusation here is, Where's the fruit of repentance? Turn or burn, baby, is what John is saying to us. So the meaning of repentance, bow twice to your God. So let's look then at the few pieces of this text that we've not looked at yet. Firstly, let me ask you a question. Are you ready for inspection? Are you ready to be inspected by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the answer to the question is not the same thing as do you bear fruit. Don't confuse those two things. There are two groups of people in the world. There are those that know they're not ready and there are those that don't know they're not ready. There are only two groups of people here. And there are two groups of people in the story that we saw with John the Baptist. There are the devoutly religious intellectuals who say, yes, we're ready. We're the children of Abraham. And then there are people who say, oh my gosh, you're right, I'm not ready. 
I've got to do some serious work before the king arrives. They're the ones who went, who repented and got baptized, washed clean symbolically. Let me read verse 5 to you. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. See, we repent because we realize we're not ready for inspection. This is the first fruit of faith, realizing how messed up you are. We repent because we see some sign that we're driving to Mexico instead of Canada. And we realize, oh my gosh, I'm going in the wrong direction in this part of my life. I've got to turn it around. When we take inventory of our lives, it should drive us to our knees in repentance. And I don't mean once, again and again and again, every Sunday, every day, every minute, it's turn, turn, turn. What a mess I am, what a mess you are, whether you realize it or not. Without attention, my car turns around almost on its own and heads to Mexico. I don't have to do much to let it do that. Constantly realizing, which way do I want to go? How do I work on this part of my life? What do I do to make this part more aligned with where Christ wants me to be? That's hard and consistent work. And here's the really weird thing, right? The Christian life is a life of constant repentance, constant turning, but I'm turning to God and I'm turning to freedom. I'm turning to completion. I'm turning to love. Why? It shouldn't be this hard. But it is. But it is. It is this hard. My heart is so corrupt. Now, one verse we haven't read yet is verse 11, the last verse in this passage. Let me read it to you. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork, and then he goes on. Okay. So we are not just washed once symbolically with water. We're being washed constantly by the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And I'm going to encourage you, here's a takeaway, right? One takeaway. Don't quench that spirit. Now, there are some people who spend all their time in prayer and in the Word. All their time. In fact, probably too much to the point where they don't actually use their eyes, their hands, their feet to go out and do things. How many people fall in that category? Okay, so we're not talking to you guys today. That's all right. Uh, the rest of us have to start realizing that we aren't going to properly repent until we work out how we're going to be people who allow the Spirit to work through our lives because we spend time in prayer and in the Word. And this requires us to slowly discipline ourselves, to constantly turn the car around. It means going to bed time. Now, you may find different ways of doing this, and there's nothing in Scripture which says that you specifically have to get up in the morning, find a little place which is quiet, grab your Bible and read it. But I don't know of a better way of doing it. And if you do, and that works for you, great. But if you're just not doing it, if you're not constantly immersed in the Word, if you're not constantly sitting there in prayer, if you're not constantly asking the Holy Spirit, where do I need to repent? 
Where do I need to turn? What piece of my life do you want me to be working on? How can I be more in line with what your values are and what you call me to be? Then I'm going to encourage you, just start working on that. And if you get it wrong, it's okay. The car turns itself around and starts heading to Mexico. And you see the signs, okay, let's get it right again. Let's get it right again. Let's get it right again. It's okay. Be on your knees constantly, asking to be on your knees more. Is your life ready for inspection by the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope you know it's not. Is your, is your heart ready to be reclaimed by the Lord Jesus Christ? I hope so. Bow twice to your God, once as creator, and then again and again and again and again as Lord. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Let's pray. Lord God, this is really a strange, hard, confronting passage. And John the Baptist had to say this to everybody. I, I thank you that I just needed to say it here to myself as much as anybody else. Father, help us to hear it. Help us to be convicted by it. Help us to act. Help us to stop and turn, even if it just starts with working it out. Even if it takes a year, or two years. How to be people who sit under your word in prayer, listening to your spirit convict us. Father, bless us with your discipline, your correction, and a movement towards you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.